This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon. Welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. We are broadcasting live from Johannesburg. We are on channel channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet on free-to-air satellite PAS10 and on the internet at www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm in studio with Tracy Bumgart and Nosi Lezuma. My name is Kumbero Munjerere. Coming up on the show this hour, the Democratic Republic of Congo's president, Felix Chisikedi, is busy consulting with different organizations and personalities in order to create a sacred union of the nation. At a time when the South African economy is shedding jobs, but to a local sneaker brand continues to make strides since its inception in 2015. And in business news, uh, rather in sport news, Eswatini came back from behind to beat Comoros 4-2 in the opening match of the 2020 Kosafa Women's Championship at Walson Stadium in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province earlier this afternoon. All this and more coming up on the show, but first the news with Tracy Boomgaard. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Kumbelo. COVID-19 cases have risen globally to 46,403,652, with the death toll standing at almost 2 million. The number of cases in the Americas make up almost half of the global total, with just under 20 million. The United States has reported just over 9 million cases and nearly 230,000 deaths. India and Brazil ranked second and third in the world. The Argentine government has urged the public to comply more rigorously rigorously with preventative measures to allow life to return to some type of normality. Over 400,000 people from Cabo Delgado in the northern province of Mozambique have been displaced and are now facing serious health risks and inadequate living conditions since fighting began in October 2017. This is according to Doctors Without Borders. Internally displaced people are living in temporary shelter sites like school buildings, with many lacking clean drinking water and living in unsanitary crowded conditions. MSF has pleaded with the country's authorities to mobilize additional humanitarian staff and supplies without delay to avoid a major disaster. Police in Austria are still looking for at least one other person they believe was involved in Monday's suspected terror attacks in Vienna. One of the gunmen who was shot dead after the attack has been described as an ISIS militant group sympathizer by officials. The attack came as people gathered just before the start of the new coronavirus restrictions. Gunmen attacked six locations, starting outside the main synagogue in Vienna, wounding at least 15 people. Rabbi Shlomo Hofmeister describes what he saw. Upon hearing the gunshots on the street, I looked down our window and I saw the attacker shooting 
an estimated 100 rounds of bullets at various pubs and bars. And uh, those people jumping inside the bars, running away, was a terrible view. A four-year-old girl rescued from the rubble of a collapsed building in Turkey on Tuesday asked for Turkish meatballs and a yogurt drink as she was rushed to hospital. Rescuers heard the little girl's screams from under the rubble. Turkey's Disaster and Emergency Management Authority says Friday's earthquake is the deadliest to hit Turkey in nearly a decade. Over 100 people were killed. Police in Pakistan have rescued a 13-year-old Christian girl who was allegedly abducted and forced to convert and marry a Muslim man. The recovery came nearly a month after the girl's parents alleged she was abducted by a 44-year-old man. The rescued teen is now in protective custody. Her alleged abductor has been arrested and is due in court soon. According to a United Nations study, nearly a quarter of women in their early 20s in Pakistan are married by 18. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Tracy. It is uh, five minutes after five Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. The Democratic Republic of Congo's president, Felix Chisikedi, is busy consulting with different organizations and personalities in order to create a sacred union of the nation. The meetings that started on Monday have been announced more than a week ago. During his speech to the Congolese nation, Mr. President promised he would consult with the most representative political and social actors as the country is facing a serious crisis. Januel Bomwenze reports from Kinshasa. The crisis is due to the ongoing misunderstanding within the ruling coalition as the two partners, President Felix Tshisekedi's cap for change and former President Joseph Kabila's common front for the Congo, have remained in conflict since the beginning. That's indeed the situation President Chisekedi is trying to solve through the current talks as he expects constructive ideas from people he's meeting. And among the first organizations and personalities to have been consulted are the Independent National Electoral Commission. The commission president, Corne Nanga, pleaded for a new team to be put in place. Aujourd'hui, la question qui peut se poser, est-ce que l'équipe Nanga est-il encore Today, the question remains, is the Nanga team still legitimate to organize the elections? This is one of the preparation critics. We say new Seni members have to be appointed as soon as possible for them to study the situation and give the figures, for example, for the costs. On his side, Joseph Olengankoy, president of the National Committee of Agreement Follow-Up, expressed his wish to see President Felix Tshisekedi meet with former President Joseph Kabila. We would like him to meet first with his predecessor so that they could discuss without these extremists who are on the Joseph Kabila side and those on the Chisekedi side. 
Our mission is to always say the truth and direct him towards the peace. And among the personalities President Tshisekedi has consulted is Cardinal Laurent Mosengo Pasinha. This Catholic Church high leader said he has advised the Mr. President to work for improving this country's economy. We have handed a memo to him and in the memo we mentioned that the country needs to work on the economy. The economy for everybody, for the country's development and for people to get what to eat. This initiative will allow him to get a response. The talks are going on as they are scheduled for a whole week to allow President Felix Tshisekedi meet with more people since he promised none of the most representative political and social actors will be left behind. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The International Committee of, of the Red Cross ICRC says clashes, climate shocks and COVID-19 are driving more Sudanese into poverty and threatening, threatening the health and well-being of hundreds of thousands of people who were already reeling from decades of conflict. According to the ICRC, it is estimated that around a quarter of the 40 million Sudanese need immediate humanitarian assistance. Meanwhile, the risk of renewed clashes in parts of Darfur and eastern Sudan remains, remains as tensions simmer despite the signing of the peace agreement in Juba. For more on the situation in the country, here is ICRC spokesperson Crystal Wells. Sudan is really at risk of being a forgotten humanitarian crisis, and yet the needs there are enormous and they're growing. Um, and this is really because many Sudanese are facing a very layered crisis. Um, there have been decades of conflict and violence that have affected communities, especially those in Blue Nile, South Kordofan, and Darfur states um, that have robbed thousands and thousands of people of the very basics like healthcare, clean water, and food. Um, you also have climate change with climate shocks happening more regularly into greater extreme with communities facing droughts and then floods like we saw recently. Um, and on top of all of this, of course, you have the COVID-19 pandemic and economic hardship in the country um, that is basically affecting people's livelihoods. It's pushing uh, food prices and other staple good prices to increase. So the bottom line of all of these different shocks hitting communities is that we're seeing an increasing number of Sudanese slide further into poverty. Today, we estimate that one in four Sudanese are facing food shortages, um, all while prices continue to climb and you do continue to see uh, sporadic clashes at times um, and it's all coming in the aftermath of this very widespread flooding. Give us an update on what the ICRC has managed to achieve in response to Sudan's multiple crises, Crystal, including the new COVID-19 threat. The work of the International Committee of the Red Cross largely centers around Blue Nile, South Kordofan and Darfur states and this is largely because these are areas that have been 
long impacted by the consequences of conflict and violence. And in 2020, this work has included providing seeds and farming tools and food to about 159,000 people. Um, we've also vaccinated about 360,000 livestock. These programs are basically an effort to try and help families wherever possible to be able to rebuild and carve out livelihoods so that they can support themselves and their families and also have a more sustainable source of food. Um, we also continue to provide uh, support in uh, very life-saving and basic areas. Um, we are helping with access to water, for example, for about 146,000 people. Um, and when there are clashes like what we saw in West Darfur earlier this year, we also do what we can to support um, hospitals and medical facilities with medical supplies so that they're able to treat the influx of injuries that they receive from those clashes. Now, the ISRC maintains that humanitarian assistance is really not enough for the country. What more needs to happen and which actors need to come on board? While humanitarian assistance is crucial and having access to communities is obviously really important in terms of making sure people have the basics that they need to get by, it's not the silver bullet to all of the um, crises that Sudanese are facing. Um, I think the sad reality is that humanitarian assistance isn't going to end this cycle of displacement and violence and hunger that we've seen trap so many Sudanese for decades and decades. The only way to break that cycle is for those who are participating in clashes to respect people's lives and their property so that they are um, left unscathed and that they're able to continue to rebuild their lives and live their lives safely. That's a Crystal Wells, a spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross Africa region. She was on the line there from Nairobi in Kenya talking to Jane Rabutata. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and and, (laughs) and do my part and do it really, really well. It is uh, 15 minutes after 5 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor Fato Ben Suda has decried the current deteriorating situation in Sudan's southwestern region of Darfur, where more than 100 aid workers and international peacekeepers have been killed over the past 10 years. James Shimanyula takes up the story. Speaking in Khartoum shortly before she returned to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, Netherlands, after officially visiting Sudan 
and holding crucial talks with the authorities there, Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda summarized the current situation in the country's southwestern region of Darfur. The situation in Darfur continues to deteriorate and the plight of Darfur victims continues to go from bad to worse. In 10 years, the situation in Darfur alone has cost the United Nations and humanitarian aid organizations more than $10.5 billion. Ben Sudan disclosed the number of international aid workers that have been killed in Darfur over the past 10 years. The situation in Darfur has cost the lives of 47 aid workers, with many more injured and abducted. Alluding to attacks that have resulted in the death of international peacekeepers in Darfur over the past 10 years, Ben Suda said. Attacks on peacekeepers in Darfur appear to have become the norm, with a record number of 57 killings. Not enough seems to have been done to identify those responsible. Ben Suda made an urgent and important appeal to the international community. It is in the common interest of the United Nations, the African Union, and the ICC to ensure that those responsible for attacking peacekeepers are swiftly brought to justice. The numbers of people killed, abducted, and displaced continues to grow each year. The time has come for arresting those alleged to be responsible for these crimes. This is the only way to stop the seemingly endless suffering of the Darfur victims. Ben Suda had a strong message to Darfur fugitives. A message to all Darfur fugitives. You have nothing to fear coming to the ICC if you are innocent. Any person brought before the court will be afforded all the requisite facilities, right to legal assistance and other necessary safeguards to ensure he undergoes a fair trial which respects the due process guarantees stipulated in the Rome Statute. Failure by the international community to put pressure on the government of Sudan to arrest and surrender persons against whom arrest warrants have been issued continues to present an ongoing challenge for my office in moving forward with the other trials. Lasting peace in Darfur will remain elusive for as long as those alleged to be responsible for the commission of the crimes remain at large. That was Fatou Ben Souda, chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, also commenting on suspects that are wanted by the International Criminal Court to face various criminal charges is Al-Amin Sharif, a political and a military expert on Darfur. Sharif hopes that the killers of aid workers and peacekeepers will be tracked down, apprehended and taken to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, Netherlands. We hope as soon as possible all of them have to be handed over to the International Criminal Court and this is uh, the way forward uh, for the comprehensive and sustainable peace in the country. The country that political and military expert Al-Amini Sharif is referring to is Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Now, who is Africa rooting for in the U.S. presidential elections? Well, opinion is divided on who is best for the continent. U.S.-Africa relations experts, however, say a Joe Biden admin administration would be good for Africa's bid to integrate and trade as one. 
Sarah Kimani filed this report. Africa has not featured in any of the presidential or vice presidential debates in the U.S. in the run-up to the elections. That's not to say, however, that the continent is not following events in the country. Top on the minds of many policymakers is how incumbent President Donald Trump has chosen to relate with the continent a departure from his predecessors. Dr. Hassan Hanenje is an international relations expert based in Kenya. He's less interested in dealing with uh, multilateral organizations as opposed to dealing with individual uh, countries, for instance, because he thinks he can be able to uh, generate a lot more profit for the United States taxpayer or public, uh, as opposed to dealing with multilateral organizations or regional organizations, which make it difficult, especially when it comes to negotiations. Four African countries suffered a blow with the announcement of a controversial travel ban policy also affected our reproductive health services where the Trump administration has cut funding. But generally it has been a policy that has had a negative impact on uh, students seeking education, on refugees who may not really have a home and who are in the process of going relocating to the United States. You know, as well as exchange programs that enrich African economies, African cultures, and the African education system at large. The Trump administration has ever been held for its support to Africa's anti-terrorism efforts. Trump has ever remained mum as a narration of democracy crept back into the continent with a number of African leaders unconstitutionally extending their terms in office. We have seen heightened activities when it comes to counter-terrorism, uh, especially investment in hard power and others, but a very little focus in trying to grow African economies, uh, improve infrastructure, or even try to improve the level of governance and democracy in the continent, and he has suffered greatly under his leadership. Dr. Hanenja, who until three years ago taught in a university in the U.S., follows keenly the events in the U.S. He is calling it for Biden. Now, in other parts or other spaces, we expect that uh, if uh, in the case of Biden presidency, there's going to be a more, more focus on multilateral approach mm -hmm. and perhaps more willingness to deal with the, the, the continental bodies in solving conflicts regionally and continentally, but also in ensuring that uh, human rights and democracy are upheld in most parts of the continent because we know increasingly those two aspects are on decline in the last few years. Across the capital Nairobi, opinion is divided on which U.S. president is best for Africa. But even here, it is clear there is a great interest in the goings-on in the Big Brother house. Uh, Donald Trump, of course. Okay, because we've seen what he's done. And, uh, you know, he's one guy who stands for the rights of Americans. When you look at me, I'm a South Sudanese. In fact, his administration is very reluctant on the global peace uh, contention uh, with that reason. He, he has even failed the world, not America. I like his policies and, and his humility. Uh, he's not arrogant like, uh, like Trump. Biden, straight, yes. Why? Uh, Biden resonates well with the many Americans and even outside America. Like, for example, in Africa, you remember Biden worked with Obama. And many people associate with the Obama. And African during Obama time benefited a lot. Eh? I think Joe Biden would be a much better person. Yeah. 
because he looks at least he's not uh, as insincere as Trump. Mm, we wish him the best. Mm. From the conflict of a river now to getting fabric from factories in Lesotho to the U.S., it is a high-stake elections for Africa, whichever way it goes. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, most viruses and other germs do not spread easily on flights because of how air circulates and is filtered on airplanes. However, the CDC notes that because air travel requires spending time in security lines and airport terminals, which can bring you in close contact with other people and frequently touched surfaces, the risk of getting COVID-19 may increase. Meanwhile, it is reported that authorities in Ireland may advise against air travel during Christmas following a study suggesting 59 confirmed cases of COVID-19 could be traced back to a flight into the country during the summer months. To reflect more on the safety of flying during a pandemic, Channel Africa spoke to Bert Rodriguez, CEO of the Biodex Biological Chemical Technologies Company, in South Africa. Obviously, the basic principles which we have learned to adhere to, which is social distancing, uh, mask wearing and sanitizing, uh, of course, hand washing whenever you can, becomes pretty difficult when you are packed in an airport where you don't know if you are touching a surface that is contaminated or not. Uh, Studies show that the virus lasts fairly long on a surface, whether it's plastic, wood or steel. So the contact that a person has physically with other people and with the equipment and various terminal ports you have to go through uh, put you at risk of getting contaminated. Now, you know, just thinking of a, of an airport terminal and the queues and the lines, um, you know, social distancing can sort of work there. But now in an airplane, how does a, a passenger um, minimize the chances of contracting the virus? You know, it is uh, difficult, but of course, in an airplane, the biggest challenge you have is your hands. You cannot really make yourself to the window seat without putting your hands on the seat in front of you or uh, touching the armrests on the seat. Once you're seated in your position, then of course you can limit your contact with the surface. But your biggest danger remains uh, your hands touching the surface, getting infected, and then you touch your face and you infect yourself. So on an aeroplane, it becomes a, fa- a fairly big challenge if you're packed in like sardines. How do you social distance? How do you not rub uh, the person next to you? So that is something that needs to be taken into consideration if you're going to get on a plane. As soon as you, it's like going to a restaurant. As soon as you take the decision that you're going to go out, you must assume a fair amount of the risk that you do run the risk of getting co- uh, contracting uh, the virus. So from that perspective, the aeroplane is no different to any other environment where you are closed, except ventilation in an aeroplane is vertical. So you have much bigger safety than being in a restaurant where the ventilation might be cross-ventilation from the front door to the back door. That loans itself to spreading the disease. So that is the biggest challenge you are facing 
in an aeroplane itself. You know, a new study um, published by the European journal Eurosurveillance uh, demonstrates the potential of the spread of COVID-19 linked to air travel. What should we make of the findings, considering that uh, air travel has largely resumed and the festive season is upon us? Should we be worried? Yes, of course, it is always a worrying factor, Lulu. If uh, the studies that have been conducted uh, around aeroplanes' uh, infection transmission is quite simple. I had a look at the study of the Euro surveillance, uh, which I believe you're referencing. That study uh, shows that that particular case related to the Irish contamination, it is a complex case because people had boarded that plane uh, formed, were formed from a variety of groups. And those groups, some people had been 24 hours laid over in an aeroplane. Uh, some of those people had been in uh, lounges in airports. And those, of course, were, they loaned themselves to getting infected. Then additionally to that, when those people had left the aeroplane that were contaminated, um, 70% of those contamination beyond the flight were all to do with two people that went to social media. So again, uh, the getting together in a closed environment poses a risk. So do I think that the risk was directly related to the aeroplane? Probably not. Again, if you get tested 72 hours before you fly, uh, we know that the disease, you will contract the disease, you will incubate it for approximately eight days, you may not really get symptoms. And then after that period, the virus then starts um, growing. So the spread that came out of that study and uh, as I say, close to 70% of the infections, although 59% uh, 59 people were infected, it was really two people that spread that virus through social gatherings post the flight. So I suppose there is something to be said about if you arrive, still observe um, your lockdown protocol and stay a couple of days, don't go socialising immediately so that you stay on the safe side of things. Let's speak about uh, um, the enforcing of COVID-19 regulations and uh, uh, repercussions of non-compliance in reference to, uh, for instance, an aircraft that uh, had to um, make a U-turn on the terminal to remove a passenger who refused to wear a mask. Just to get to that point of them refusing to wear a mask, firstly, how did they get onto the plane and how must uh, flight attendants or the pilot deal with such uh, passengers who refuse to, to to wear a mask in compliance with COVID-19 regulations? The, the compliance, of course, is uh, every person needs to take responsibility for, for each one. Uh, governments around the world have all adopted the same strategies. So it is not that uh, in South Africa we have a different strategy to prevent the virus from spreading to the rest of the world. Those laws have been set in place. We've agreed that that's how we should behave. Now, whether a mask works or whether it doesn't work, uh, there's a million opinions and a million questions around it. However, if we have decided to wear the mask, whether you're a person that believes it works or it doesn't work, it is no good antagonizing the rest of the population. Uh, because of a mask. Do, do yourself a favour and do your fellow citizens a favour and wear the mask. That's uh, Bert Rodriguez, CEO of uh, the Biodex Biological Chemical Technologies Company in South Africa, on the line there talking to Lulu Gabu. It is now uh, 29 minutes to 6 Central African time. This is Africa Digest on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It is now time for the news headlines with uh, Tracy Boomgaard. Thank <laughs> you.
SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Kumbelo. U.S. presidential candidate Joe Biden is ahead in the polls as Americans vote in a crucial presidential election, but the race is tightening in key American states. A three-year-old girl has been rescued from the rubble of a collapsed building 91 hours after a powerful earthquake hit western Turkey. Police in Austria are still looking for at least one other person they believe was involved in Monday's suspected terror attacks in Vienna. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Tracy. South Africa's Eastern Cape government has sent its uh, proposal to the national government about how it will conduct the summer initiation season. Last month, the Deputy Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Obed Babela, confirmed that the traditional rite of passage will continue this December under strict, strict conditions. The Eastern Cape put together its strategy after a multidisciplinary meeting comprising of the Provincial Cocta Department, say SA. SAPS, NPA, and the Health Department. This year, 20 illegal initiation schools have been shut down in the Buffalo City metro alone. One initiate who who proceeded with the process illegally has died in the Oartambo district. Our reporter Abongile Yankees filed this report. The winter initiation season was cancelled with the arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic. The infection rate then dropped, leading to the go-ahead for the summer initiation season. But a second wave of infections is moving, though. The province triggering caution. Cocta MEC Olilengata says they are hoping for an incident-free initiation season. We're working with local initiation committees to monitor uh, the situation in each area. In each area has got local initiation committees, Already the Department of Health has done training of trainers, people that we are locating in all districts who have been trained, uh, you know, to go and train others. And uh, we have established uh, what we call rapid response teams uh, per districts, uh, which is a multidisciplinary team. One metric learner from King Williamstown, Azuki Seflacha, says he is looking forward to undergo this passage despite the threat of COVID-19. So for me, it's like going to university, I want to be a man. And for the fact that I knew that in 2020, I usually must, um, we are going to circumcision school when we are 18 years old. You see, So for me, it would be heartbroken to go to circumcision school uh, at the age of 19, knowing that no, um, for instance, my peers, somewhere somehow uh, going to the circumcision school whereas I'm not going there. So for me I really I'm really looking forward to go to circumcision school so that I'll be a man and take care of myself. His father Bongani Lukashi is in full support of this. That's a strategy. And they say that he's going to university next year. I I see no reason for him not to go to circumcision school. Because if I send him being a boy there, he's going to experience some trouble there. 
a lot of uh, questions, challenges going to face there. An expected 40,000 boys are expected to undergo the rite of passage this coming summer season in the Eastern Cape. I'm Abongile Yankees in the Eastern Cape. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The rights group Amnesty International has revealed that at least 54 people from the Amara ethnic group in Ethiopia were killed in an attack by suspected members of the Oromo Liberation Army, OLA, armed group. Amnesty says the attack on Gawa, Gankla village in the Guliso district of the West Welega zone took place just a day after Ethiopian defense after Ethiopian Defense Forces troops withdrew from the area last week. According to the witnesses that the organization interviewed, dozens of men, women and children were killed and their property looted. Amnesty International Ethiopia researcher Fiseha Tekle has more on the incident. According to the uh, the victims who witnessed the killings uh, and the survivors, what we uh, know is that killings and the lootings were committed by uh, members of an armed group uh, who who called itself as Oromo Liberation Army. And this is a group which has been operating in that area um, before the last uh, three, four years. Uh, so uh, they have committed all these killings on the on 1st of November, uh, just uh, a day after the Egyptian National Defense Force have uh, left the area. And the area is in the western part of Romia. Uh, the zone is called Western uh, Wallaga Zone. And the district is Kuliso. Uh, and the specific village or Kule is called Gawakanka. Uh, uh, Gawakanka, sorry. Uh, so, uh, at least, uh, up to the, uh, according to the numbers we had yesterday, uh, at least uh, 54 people were killed, but uh, uh, survivors who were involved in uh, picking the dead uh, have told us that uh, the, the number might increase as they are still uh, dead bodies from the bushes around the area. Does the government also agree with the figure of 54 people that have been killed? Uh, 
I'm, I'm not sure of the number the, from the government. Uh, from what I know up to yesterday, they have not come up with any specific number. Uh, but according to the Ethiopian Animal Rights uh, Commission, they have uh, said the number is uh, the number can be up to 32. Uh, but they are also expecting a re, uh, additional uh, body count. Uh, so the number is not yet confirmed for uh, for sure yet. The attack happened uh, just a day after Ethiopian Defense Forces troops withdrew from the area precipitously. What kind of impact did the presence of the army have on the situation on the ground? Well, the the army was deployed and stationed there uh, following a similar attack uh, against the Amara community members uh, before some uh, months. Uh, which killed uh, a husband and a wife. So the government has deployed the, the units of the defense forces there for some time, and they withdraw. Uh, they withdrew on uh, uh, 31st of uh, October, uh, and the armed group or members of the armed group uh, took control of the area uh, following the, the immediate, immediately after. Uh, the withdrawal. On the same day, the, the defense forces withdrew. The, uh, these armed groups controlled the area. Uh, so you can see that uh, the removal, the removal of the defense forces has uh, direct impact on the uh, killing of these people in the area. So what we are saying is that um, uh, it must be investigated why the government has decided to uh, withdraw the troops without uh, properly securing the area uh, should be investigated. You have called on the authorities to investigate the attack. Are you confident that uh, Ethiopian authorities will prosecute those responsible? Uh, we have seen some instances where the government has uh, investigated uh, similar instances, like the killings in different parts of the country. I hope they, will, they are going to continue and do the, the right thing, which is investigating, establishing the truth, uh, apprehending the, those who are suspected of the crime and uh, taking them to uh, proper accountability mechanisms, including prosecution. Uh, and we expect this to be uh, the most honest uh, exercise including not only the investigation of these uh, perpetrators of the attack, but also uh, members of the government who are behind uh, this uh, withdrawal of the, uh, for the security forces. The attack on minority groups uh, has been going on for quite some time now in that particular area. If this issue of minority groups being attacked is not attended to by the authorities, what would be the long-term impact? Uh, one of the, uh, the prime obligations of the government is ensuring security for its people. And when we put it in human rights language, that's a duty to protect. Uh, so in instances where the government uh, uh, fails to ensure the security of the, uh, its people, uh, the, uh, that's one, a human rights violation by itself. Uh, but uh, the, the people uh, that might lead to other uh, additional uh, similar attacks, uh, revenge activities, and things like that. So uh, if the government is not going to be uh, categorical about this and is not going to stop this, 
uh, uh, this might herald uh, uh, other instances of revenge, other instances of conflict. So the government has to put this situation in con- under control. That's uh, Fise Hatakle, Amnesty International, a researcher for Ethiopia, talking to me earlier. Are you ready? Something new, informative, fun and exciting is coming your way. Channel Africa is introducing brand new shows and you, our valued listener, do not want to miss these. Live Well will be launched on the 31st of August at 10 hours and will educate us about health, wellness and health lifestyles. African Insight to be launched on the 2nd of September at 8 hours. It looks at infrastructure projects in Africa in an effort to improve the continent's economy. Yours truly, to be launched on the 31st of August, broadcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday between 22 hours and 23 hours. And it will connect listeners to the loved ones through dedications, well wishes, topped up with great African music. Cuisines Africa will be launched on the 5th of September at 10 hours and will leave you salivating as we explore diverse African dishes, color of culture and rich history. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV 802 for these new exciting editions. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is 15 minutes to 6 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa from an African perspective. It is now time for the latest economic news with Nosi Lezuma. Thank you, Kumbelo. Good evening. Trade Union of South Africa, Bemao, says it has temporarily halted its urgent application in the Labour Court over the South African Broadcasting Corporation's planned retrenchments of around 600 permanent staff to see if the SABC will return to the consultations in good faith. Bemao says the public broadcaster has committed to further meetings with it and other consulting parties on its restructuring process. The matter was said to be heard in the Labour Court in Johannesburg on Wednesday, which is tomorrow. The union sought to stop this SABC from retrenching staff after talks broke down and wanted an interdict to force the employer to consult further. Bemao spokesperson we have been advised that we should remove the application from the urgent role on a temporary basis to see if the SABC will comply with their undertaking to properly consult on the outstanding issues in terms of Section 189. Should the SABC not honor that undertaking, we will immediately re-enroll the matter and place it before the urgent court for determination. 
South Africa's private sector has joined hands with government to help roll out the country's ambitious infrastructure drive. Government is currently rolling out 62 infrastructure projects countrywide with billions of rents. President Cyril Ramaphosa has opened the two-day Infrastructure South Africa Project Preparation Roundtable Discussion and Marketplace in Midrand in Johannesburg. The meeting brings together government officials and business to discuss ways of working together to realize the country's infrastructure drive. Head of Infrastructure and Investment in the Presidency, Dr. Josien Nzura Mahopa, says having credible project preparation in place has attracted human and capital investment from the private sector. To indicate that the private sector has been very generous, that as the state looks to ensure that it builds embedded capacity within the state to discharge and prosecute its constitutional obligations. The private sector has made available over 25 experts, President. These are people who, some of them are retired, wealth of expertise, some of them are still attached to these institutions. They'll be released and paid by the private sector for the benefit of the state so that we are able to conceptualize, conceive of these projects and ensure that we accelerate them towards financial growth and delivery and implementation. Former South African Airways technical chair Yake Gunana has denied attending a meeting where she tried to force two senior executives to sign an unlawful policy for black businesses at SAA. The 30% set-aside policy was directed to those who had BE partners from contractors. The policy got resistance from National Treasury and the Department of Trade and Industry because it was unlawful and inconsistent in procurement policy and legislation. Despite this, it is alleged Quinana and former SAA board chair Dudumieni continued to implement the policy despite being cautioned not to do so by SAA then Chief Procurement Officer Dr. Masimba Daha. Quinana claims there were no concerns regarding the 30% set-aside implementation and neither was guidance given. Quinana is giving evidence at the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg. I'm sure for such a long meeting that would start at 10 o'clock and end at four o'clock, there would be minutes that would be approved by the people who are in that Ms. meeting. Ms. if what Dr. Dawa says you and Ms. Mieni were doing in that meeting to her, that was wrong. And if you, if you were doing something wrong, you were not going to have minutes for that, for that meeting, obviously. So Chair. not every meeting has got minutes. And certainly min- meetings where wrong things are being done, people don't keep minutes generally. Definitely, Chair, in this meeting I was not there. Lebanon's caretaker Prime Minister Hassan Diab called on the central bank to provide restructuring consultancy Alvarez and Masao with all the information requested for a forensic audit warning against any attempt to scupper their process. Lebanon is grappling with a financial meltdown that has crashed the currency, paralyzed banks and prompted a sovereign default. It hired the turnaround specialist this year to audit the central bank, a key demand of the International Monetary fund and foreign donors which have pressed the indebted state to tackle waste and corruption. Diabo said in a statement on Tuesday that Banque du Liban, BDB, had only provided the firm with 42% of the documents requested and criticized it for citing Lebanese legislation and banking secrecy as a justification. 
And the European Union has agreed to provide Mozambique with $116 million in coronavirus-related aid. EU Ambassador Antonio Sanchez Benedito Caspa told a press conference in the capital Maputo that the agreement had different characteristics to the direct budget support the EU used to provide and was focused specifically on helping with the socio-economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. The EU cut off direct budget support to Mozambique in 2016 after the country revealed the existence of hefty state guaranteed loans that it had not previously disclosed. A number of other donors, including the International Monetary Fund, also halted aid to Mozambique. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 380.64 Nigerian Naira, 11.28 Botswana Bula, 108 Kenyan Shilling and 20.59 Zambian Kwacha. In base currencies, one U.S. dollar is trading at 5.74 Brazilian Real, 79.28 Russian Ruble, 74.55 Indian Rupee, 6.68 Chinese Yuan and at 16.19 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to the euro. Now looking at commodities, gold is trading at 1,000 and $892 and platinum at $858 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $38.97 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosisha Zuma. Thank you, Nausicaa, and with the latest sporting news, here is Neto Chemane. Thank you, Kumbela. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with football news. Eswatini came back from behind to beat Comoros 4-2 in the opening match of the 2020 Kosafa Women's Championship at Wolfson Stadium in South Africa's Eastern Cape province earlier this afternoon. Eswatini were 2-0 down at the 60th minute mark and had to dig deep to register their first win of the tournament. Eswatini head coach Bongumu Samdluli says despite the win, it was a difficult game. It was it was it was it was a difficult game uh, for us. To an extent, we made it difficult for ourselves, but uh, at least we were able to, to 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 come back. We were able to manage the situation. It was becoming a difficult situation. Uh, however, we were able to manage the situation, especially with the substitutions that we we made. It became a little bit very difficult when we lost Sanga due to a, a, a muscle injury. Uh, I think ten minutes or so to the game. That that made it difficult for us because we we had a system going forward. Then we had to change the system and opt for another system because she was the one giving us a little bit of width and pace on the wing. Just like all the teams at this year's tournament, Eswatini has not played matches in eight months due to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Coach Mdluli speaks on how this has affected his team. Uh, it, it did disrupt us a, a lot, uh, owing to the fact that uh, the long layoff 
uh, had a, a telling effect on the performance of the players. Uh, they were they were a little bit stale, they were a little bit slow, and even the cramps and injuries, I will say, they were a result of that. Eswatini will be back in action on Friday when they take on the defending champions and the hosts of South Africa. The 2020-2021 edition of the South African Premier Soccer League returns with its third round of fixtures this week as Orlando Pirates take on Bloemfontein Celtic at the Saramabodi Stadium on Wednesday. Both the teams have experienced mixed starts to their campaigns and will want to make a statement in this game. Former Celtic defender Fabian McCarthy says both Pirates and Celtic will use this match as preparations to set up an MTN8 a final meeting if they come out victors over the weekend's second leg action. Yes, indeed, good preparation. That this can maybe even be the final if both teams are winning over the weekend. So obviously it's a question of how the, the coaches are planning, how the players are preparing themselves for, for, for tomorrow's game and for the weekend game. Forget about the second leg of the semi-final. You have to do the job tomorrow and then after tomorrow night, you will take care of, of the weekend going into the, the semi-final. But, you know, obviously the MTN 8 is where most players will think they're going to get Christmas bonus, they can win a trophy, they can get the medal, and can have a nice Christmas league game. It's still on, it's a marathon, but tomorrow's performance will set the, the tone for, for the weekend. In basketball news, Rwanda will face Mali in the two sides' first Group D game at the upcoming qualifiers for the 2021 African Basketball Championships AfroBasket Finals. Both the qualifiers tournament due later this month and the AfroBasket Finals to take place in Rwanda at the magnificent 10,000-seater in Kigali Arena. According to Rwanda Basketball Federation, Ferraba officials, the qualifiers showpiece is scheduled from November the 25th to the 29th, while the AfroBasket 2021 will run from August the 24th through to September the 5th. And finally, in athletics news. Half-marathon world champion and record holder Perios Jepcheche, Olympic 1,005 meters champion Faith Kibiegon and world 5,000 meters champion Helen Obiri have been named in the shortlist of 10 athletes to set the battle for the World Athletics Female Athletes of the Year Award. No Kenyan female athlete has ever won the award, and the trio who have had successful seasons will look to erase that piece of history by battling seven other global superstars. Though she did not compete in many races this season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Jeb Cheche ensured whenever she stepped on the road, she made a piece of history. For Channel Africa Sport, Amneto and Etio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories uh, this hour, the Democratic Republic of Congo's President Felix Chisikedi is busy consulting with different organizations and personalities in order to create a sacred union of the nation. 
And at a time when, when the South African economy is shedding jobs, but to a local sneaker brand continues to make strides since its inception in 2015. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Kumbara Mujerere, producer Tracy Bungard, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Cheers.